Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. On this week's episode, I am very fortunate to speak with Sasha Sagan, the daughter of none other than Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer and science popularizer. She's written a book called For Small Creatures Such As We that takes Sagan's philosophy and outlook on the universe and converts it into practical actions and rituals that anyone can do to live out many of the values that Sagan spoke about in his lifetime. Sasha has worked as a producer, taking after her mother, Anne Druyan, who produced both the original and now the new Cosmos series. Sasha herself is a lovely person. She radiates light in an utterly metaphorical way. We had a great conversation, and it could have gone on for much, much longer, but we decided to spare you. There can always be too much of a good thing, but luckily, we didn't get to that point. To all the patrons on Patreon supporting this show, thank you so much. Uh, This week, I want to give a shout-out to Ilya from Cambridge, Massachusetts, who uh, I've never met, but who is a friend of Anton Feinberg's. Thank you, Ilya, for signing up. If uh, you want to contribute a few dollars to the show, go to the show's website, reenchantmentpod.com, and follow the link there to my Patreon account, where you can support the show. Thank you also for all of the thoughtful emails I've been getting recently. Katie from Pittsburgh, Joanne from London, Patrick from Philly, who ironically sends me hate mail that's actually full of love and constructive critique. Thank you, Patrick. It really helps to know what I'm doing right and where I can improve, so feel free to shoot me an email with your thoughts, uh, either by going to the website or using the email daniel at reenchantmentpod.com. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Sasha Sagan. Sasha Sagan, welcome to Reenchantment. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Now, for those who don't know, and I, it's hard to believe that people don't know about Carl Sagan, Andrewian, your parents, but I want to give a quick introduction to who they were, because I think it's essential to understanding who you are. Carl Sagan is known by many as an astronomer, cosmologist, and the face of Cosmos, the series that really introduced a lot of people to the wonders of space and science. And it was co-written by his wife and your mother, Andrean. They also co-created the book Contact, which was later made into a film. And they were, I believe both of them were on uh, the team that was deciding what to put on the golden uh, records that were put on the Voyager spacecrafts. Uh, The golden records that for those that don't know, contain sounds and uh, from Earth and images that depict who we are and what our civilization is like uh, that we sent out into space and are hurtling through the cosmos as we speak. Somebody who you did an interview with a few months back, uh, Bart Campolo, he said that Carl Sagan is uh, the patron saint of scientific wonder. 
And I've met a lot of people that for whom Carl Sagan was uh, a big a big name. When they were younger, they would watch Cosmos. And for some, that was the thing that kind of deconverted them from, from their religious upbringing and made them into skeptics or atheists uh, or agnostics. And a friend of mine, when I mentioned that I was going to be talking with you on for this interview, his, his eyes kind of teared up and he said, just even mentioning Aww. Carl Sagan's name was, was just brought up so many emotions oh that's so nice i'm i'm really touched by that so your both of your parents have uh have left have created this this remarkable legacy that's touched so many people how do you how do you live in with that and in that and yeah talk talk a little bit about your relationship with with that so it's a really good question and yes one thing i would just add about the Voyager record, they fell in love while they were working on that together, yes. which just makes it that much more lovely and romantic and epic and beautiful and all of the things. And my dad died in 1996. I was 14. And since then, my mom has really been carrying on the legacy and she writes and produces and sometimes directs the new version of Cosmos. That'll be actually just a small plug, be airing on Fox very soon, um, the most recent season. And I think that the work that they created together and the work that my mom still creates, it's, when I really think about it, it's, it's, it's philosophical. It's a, it's a, my father was a scientist and he was, he, his worldview was that reality Nature, as revealed by science, is just more astonishing and breathtaking and awe-inspiring than the the stories that that we have created as human beings as placeholders when we had questions that we didn't have answers for yet. And I mean, I feel very fortunate and grateful to have been raised by these two people. Um, I'm not a scientist. My mom's actually not either. But I think there's a way, I sometimes, in the book, I, my book, I write about this idea of like, just as every Catholic is not a priest, what are those of us who see science as the pathway to understanding as our, our worldview, but maybe not our profession or our necessarily even our area of expertise call ourselves. I don't, I don't have a good um, word for that yet. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll have to come up with one when we get to the, the Taurus section um, of this conversation. But I think there's something about the idea that human beings, we fool ourselves sometimes and that's okay. That's okay. That happens. That's probably natural for all of us at one time or another. But if we're really interested in this sort of detective work to find out what is really going on and what's perception and what's reality, the scientific method is a really good tool for that. And I think being raised with that idea was amazing. And, and, And as you said, coupled with this wonder and awe for the natural world and sort of describing things that could be sort of ordinary as almost sacred in a secular sense um, was just such a beautiful 
way to be introduced to the world. All children have to be introduced little by little to this this world and our existence here. And sort of the narrative that my parents created on how to do that was that this is just all nature is powerful and astonishing and beautiful. And we know a little bit about it. We're figuring out a little bit as we go. We know a lot more than we did a few hundred years ago, but we still, there's still a lot of mystery and and we have to get comfortable with tolerating some ambiguity until we have more information on whatever topic we're pursuing. I guess your main thesis in, in this book, which is for small creatures such as we, which came out last fall, is that right? That's right. In this book, it felt like you're making the argument that there seems to be, a, from some people's perspective, a lack of a lack of enchantment in the world with the coming of scientific understanding, with uh, a kind of skeptical worldview. Some people take on a kind of uh, a cynicism about the world. But your point is that scientific skepticism does not need to be dry and empty of joy. Uh, Precisely. (laughs) Well said. Agree. (laughs) And I... I, I, I completely agree. That's that's in, in many many much of why I have created this podcast and what I want to try and communicate to to those that are listening that you can be a non-believer and still find joy and ecstasy and beauty and wonder. It's just about how how right. do we do that? And I think that one of the things that I really thought that. In the Cosmos series and in much of much of the work that your father and, and your mother have done, there there's I see two very important things that that they do. One, they there's an adv- they they are advocates for uh, truth for the truth of science for science as the a strong and right way to understand the world. But on top of that, there what what. Carl Sagan was able to do repeatedly was to be interpret that science in a way that is deeply meaningful for people. And I think that science on its own may intrinsically doesn't necessarily have the kind of mythic and poetic and wondrous quality that many of the old myths and religions do, but you can, you can make them have those qualities. So for example, the scientific fact that we are made, that everything, uh, the planet, the air, our bodies are made of the remnants of dead stars. Carl Sagan took that and he said, we are star stuff, that our bodies are literally connected with the cosmos and the stars above. We are entwined with the universe in a way that we don't think about walking around each day, but we are the stuff of the stars. Uh, and there's, there's some, something immensely beautiful and that, that instantly connects us to the rest of the world when we frame it in that way. And another scientific fact, that we are seemingly alone among trillions and trillions of stars in the universe. We are small and kind of seemingly the only life form that we can, we can find. And... Carl Sagan took that and his interpretation is if a human being were to disagree with you, let him live because in a hundred billion galaxies, you will not find another. And taking this kind of image of this fact of aloneness of, of, of uniqueness and turning it into uh, 
really a reminder of the value and the, the, the necessity to guard and to keep precious every single human life because of how rare and how special it is. Yeah, I actually think that the sweeping grandeur of nature as revealed by, the sci by science is intrinsically magnificent. But I think we have when I think that that when we're not brought up with a respect for it and when it's not presented in that way and when you have a sort of another, if you're brought up in another philosophy that's more theistic and that is presented in a grand way and facts are maligned as cold and hard, it's easy to get into that mindset. But I think that nature is, I mean, these things did not used to be separate. We, my, For most of human history, like the more deeply we understood, for example, the seasons changing or uh, the phases of the moon or which plants bloom at which times, that was not separate from our any sort of mystical or theistic or religious spiritual understanding. Those things were overlapping in many ways. And in many traditions, they, they still are. But there's something that my mother refers to as post-Copernican stress disorder, this idea that once we got to a point where we had to choose, either it's this story that we've been told that's been passed down for millennia, or it's the evidence that we can derive from the scientific method of clues about the physical laws of the universe. And it's one or the other, let's say, if we're just dealing with like heliocentrism or something like that. I'm, it's just, we're going to have to pick one or the other. And then I think that's when the presentation of one versus the other becomes really important because I think the stuff that's real, the stuff that, it, I mean, the example I love the most, and you gave two great examples, but the, the example that gets me every time is just like this idea that there is a secret code in your blood that has information, uh, information about your dead ancestors. And whether you believe in it or not, it can be tested and you can find things out that were lost to the ages. And, it's, and when you have a child in this, the secret code, will, they will have characteristics of your dead grandparents and that liter they literally live on in this way. And it's like that stuff is so magnificent and it's so powerful. And I just think by the time you get, and I, I've said this before, but like by the time you get to like middle school and you're doing worksheets about alleles, it's blase. Like it's very easy to be like, this is not this stunning, unbelievable, you know, magically, magical seeming thing. This is just um, the way things are. And like, it's no big deal. And you watch true crime and everything's about DNA. But like, this right, is a very right. recent, recent discovery for human beings. And like the mysteries that can be solved from this, it just astonishes me. And there's just so much that if we sort of took the style of fairy tales, let's say, to describe the things that even very, very ordinary things like plants grow in the earth, they get water and sunlight from the sky, and you put them in your mouth and you derive the nutrients you need to live from them. Like this is something that you learn when you're so young and it's just so easy to um, 
not be excited about sure. it every and, and time yet, you take a seems, bite of a salad or something. It, and it seems like 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 magic in a sense. Or absolutely, you know. absolutely. And I just think it's it, it it there's just so much there that when you take a step back and when and when you try to imagine what it's like or remember what it's like to learn it for the first time, it sounds beyond belief yeah. and yeah. it's provably true and i think emphasizing that and when you when you spend time i have a daughter who's 3 years old when you spend time with small children and you realize how much that it's not surprising to you and then you see their reaction when you give them a, a new piece of information it's a really beautiful reminder of how extraordinary even the very ordinary elements of being alive on this planet are yeah, and I remember when I was when I was very young, I w- would look through science encyclopedias and just just pour over them and be astounded. I remember trying to explain to my younger sister that there are planets out there, whole other worlds that are circling around the sun, and just trying to communicate how crazy that is. And and yeah, but I I think I think that we do it does become common knowledge and, and blasé. And I think, I think that's where something like the, the thing that Carl Sagan, I think, was really good at was reminding us and, and, yeah. and shocking us into, into this appreciation again. And again, you know, taking, it is, it's, it's about how you interpret these, these facts that really makes it uh, resonate on a deep emotional level. Because I think nature itself, if you go out and, and see, like stand at the bottom of a canyon or out in uh, you know, rolling, rolling forests, you, you feel it. You feel it on an, an intuitive level. The nature ocean. Is, I feel like the ocean is, I mean, how can you like stand at you know, the shore of an ocean and not feel something akin to a spiritual experience even if you're secular or maybe more so if you're secular and like this idea that like the moon controls the tides and well, it's like well, so well I'll tell you well I'll tell you how I'll tell you how yeah. you go to the beach uh with your friends and you have some ice cream and you put some suntan lotion on and yeah. then you leave and you right. didn't didn't once look out at the at the horizon and see infinity there right whittling away to a to a small line and think of all of the life that exists underneath that blue blue hub you know, but that- even if you just go to the beach and have some ice cream and some beers with your friends and leave, there's still, even if you're not consciously thinking about it, there is like that feeling of like, wow, that this feels so good. And it's mm-hmm. not just a physical sensation. There is a, some opening up that happens. I really think, and maybe we're not aware of it, but it's so, so deep within us. And it's, it, and I think it's that those are the kind of things that are so simple that we just have to sort of feed the part of us that is like, wow, and just encourage that and let that sort of grow and multiply. And yes, like in a forest in, at, on the top of a mountain where so many of us, I mean, I live in the center of a small city and like so many other people, I'm just so removed from that in a regular daily life. But when you have those moments, that is especially if you are secular that really can feed a lot of the the deep urge for for connectedness to the planet, to one another, to other forms of life that I think we all have on some level. Yeah, and well, I think that 
your book for small creatures such as we, I think what it is, what it's also doing is you bring in and describe and introduce the reader to a lot of rituals from around the world and maybe some more contemporary ones that you can create yourself. But I think that's part of the real value and power of ritual is that it, you know, can bring us again and again to this to this place of of looking at the world with new eyes you know and so if if you were to create a a ritual for yourself of simply going going for a walk every morning as as I've started doing in quarantine uh, mm-hmm. or going to the beach once a year maybe not with your friends but simply by yourself mm-hmm. and just just trying to grasp the the boundlessness of the ocean or watching cause of the cosmos series once a year and re- reminding yourself and reliving maybe childhood feelings of wonder if if, if you watched it when you were you were little um a ritual is a way in which people can return and and, and yes. open themselves up to this feeling yes i think it's it it's a funny thing to be secular as I am and to, to, but still have such a deep urge for celebrations and rituals and traditions, but I don't want to just go through the motions and do things the way, let's say my ancestors have done them because it's, it seems like, well, that's what you do this time of year, or that's you know how you do things, but really examine what these rituals mean, what I want from them and what actually reflects my philosophy if it's different than the religious philosophy of my ancestors. And I think all over the world, disparate cultures have created rituals at the same moments in terms of over the course of a year at the solstices and equinoxes, sometimes as our calendars change and politics change, those elements get moved a few days. The Roman calendar, the winter solstice was on December 25th. And there's sometimes those, there's a little bit, it's a little, you have to dig a little to see what the connection was, but so often it's connected to an astronomical event like a solstice or an equinox. And then there's so many rituals that are just the, the same touchstones, but over the course of a human life, birth, coming of age, death, these are biological events. It's very easy to not think about like the chemical physical change in a teenager when you go to like a coming of age ceremony like a bar mitzvah or a quinceanera or a sweet 16 and, or then and then think of those things as in this one category and then when you read about let's say like the land diving in Vanuatu when young men jump off these high towers with vine pliable vines tied to them as this coming of age ritual that seems very different. And you think, oh, that's like unrelated. But all of these events are about this idea that a child is going into adulthood and is able to take on responsibilities and eventually reproduce and do all these things that are very important for the species, for the group to go on. And we all have valued that in all these different ways that we've created these like performance art pieces. And I don't say that um, with any disrespect. I think they're magnificent and beautiful and so important because life on earth is constant change. 
and to wrap our minds around how things change over the course of the year, whether it's seasons, the rainy, the monsoon season, the dry season, whatever our, wherever we are, whatever the changes are, and the changes over the course of a life. If we don't take those moments to step back and process what's happening, it's just so easy to turn around and realize years have gone by. Like imagine if we had no signposts, no holidays, no New Year's, no, not, imagine how different our idea of time, which are, we're already all grappling with, especially recently, would be. And so I think those of us who don't believe in anything that would be categorized as supernatural or, or divine in the literal sense, but yes, in the colloquial sense, I think that there's, we still need all these events. And I think that especially grief and mourning just calls for some way to wrap our minds around the idea that we're all walking around animated like this and eventually it goes away. And that is just astonishing. And we have to sort of really work to understand that and come to terms with that idea. And so I think that a lot of what inspired me to research and write this book is the idea that, well, if the infrastructure for that sort of thing is often religion, what do you do when you don't have one? <laughs> um, right, right. And so, and so I think it often it has to be a combination of the things you grew up with that you feel nostalgia for that maybe are repurposed. Even if you're religious, not everyone is going to do everything that is asked of them by their sure, sure. traditions. So you have to sort of, everyone is sort of navigating, well, what am I going to emphasize? What am I going to make special for my children? What am I going to let fall away? And so I think that, that, that idea, and like if, if your belief system is, as is mine, that the natural world is so full of astonishing, beautiful wonder, then that, that can be emphasized in these holidays and, and, and celebrations and traditions. Instead of putting ads for things I don't care about in the show, I decided to dedicate this time to put up fake ads for things that I actually do care about. Today I want to tell you about bookshop.org. It is an alternative to Amazon. Amazon for a long time now has been a leader in uh, selling books and many other things, but as a result of its success, it has made the ecosystem of booksellers and the literary world incredibly fragile. Many independent bookshops have closed and gone out of business because of this, and bookshop.org is trying to do something about it. The Chicago Tribune said of it, bookshop.org is like the Rebel Alliance to Amazon's empire. Basically what they do is they take over 75% of the profits and donate it to indie bookshops around the countries. And unlike Amazon, Bookshop is a B Corp, not a regular corporation, which essentially means that it's dedicated to the public good. And while yes, the books that they sell are a little bit more expensive, that money goes towards a good place and it ends up being a lot healthier for the literary economy than shopping at Amazon. If you want to buy Sasha's book for small creatures such as we, I recommend you go to the link in the episode description, which will take you to a special page on bookshop.org, where if you buy there, 10% of the proceeds will go towards supporting reenchantment. 
Again, you can find that link in the episode description or by going to the website reenchantmentpod.com. It's up there as well. And now, back to the show. So in your book, you have uh, a bunch of different examples of very practical things that one can do to bring uh, certain rituals into your life. And something that I, I really like about the way that the book does this, and it's something that I notice the Cosmos series also did very well, is it takes traditions from across the world. It takes them from Zimbabwe and Vietnam and South Africa and Japan, Egypt. And even when watching, I was re-watching some of the uh, Cosmos series uh, before this, this interview, and you, you, see, you see Carl Sagan walking along the, the paw of the Sphinx or like walking in the forests of Siberia and going, and it gives the sense that you are looking at the earth from from space. You're looking at all of the cultures of the world and no one of them is necessarily privileged over any other. And I think that that is a really important part of Carl Sagan's philosophy. And it's something that I see uh, embodied in this book as well. Thank you. And so one, one of the, the rituals that really struck me and something that it, it was, it was around birth in one of the early chapters and is this idea that to when a child is born in certain cultures, uh, a tree is planted, or in some cases, more than one tree. You talk about a, a village where for every, every child born, 111 trees are planted. For every girl born. For every yes. girl born. Yes. 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 Uh, and that's, and that's, that's a very, very recent tradition, apparently. Uh, yes. and, and what I find beautiful about this is, one, it's simplicity, but also, two, it's essentially symbolically entwining yes. a child, a human life, with an, a natural life. And you can see the two of them grow together. You can, you know, and, and it becomes over time something that almost, almost like a, uh, a place in, on earth where, where a human life is, is embodied that even, even when maybe after, after the person has grown old and passed on, that tree could still be there. And I think that that is so beautiful and also so environmentally relevant today yes. because of the deforestation going on. And imagine if, imagine if every child was born of the billions, we planted a single tree. Yeah. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And it was, I mean, the idea exists in several cultures. And I think there is something that works on so many levels about it because there is a symbolic, without, without being too graphic, there is a very clear symbolic parallel of planting something in the earth and it grows. And it's, but it's also the idea that we're not separate from nature right? It's so easy to take ourselves out of the equation, but to remind ourselves that just the way a tree grows, bursts through the surface and, and changes over time and has these cyclical changes and over the course of its life, even though it may be much longer than a human life, it has, it grows and changes and eventually dies. And I think we we need to be reminded that we are part of nature and that we are not separate from it. And what you were, what you were saying a moment ago, which I think is so important, is this idea that when you, 
when you look at our traditions or our cultures from the purview of, let's say, an imaginary uh, visitor from somewhere else, the differences between us, between our groups and factions and philosophies are so, so superficial and so, and traditions are just barely would be, I mean, imagine trying to explain to someone from another planet, like the difference between religious traditions that are virtually identical that Jewish Christian right exactly right and and that people are the the amount of violence and discord that exists over differences that are almost impossible to describe if you were looking at it from an outside an outsider's view and I just think that that idea that we are way, way, way more alike than we are different is such an important reminder right now and that we are part of nature. You know, we have this idea, especially with the climate change crisis, that it's like that the earth is in danger and it's like the the planet itself will be okay. It's the life forms on it that are in peril and we are one of them, you know? And it's like, it's. I think this is, again, I really, I don't want to like, harp on religion or beat up on it. But I do think that a narrative, if you're told from early childhood that human beings are separate from the rest of nature and that we are special and different, our relationship with how much we value the planet is just different than if you're told from early childhood that we are part of an interconnected system that is took many, 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 many eons to form in this particular rhythm. And that while we are very powerful as a species, we are not separate from the other species on on the planet. And I think planting a tree in the earth when a baby is born is, among other things, a reminder that we are not so different from the trees. I encourage anyone listening, if you're thinking about having a child or somebody <laughs> you know is thinking about having a child, consider planting a tree along yes. with the, the birth of that, of that baby. It's a good gift because it doesn't have to be in like your yard or whatever. I think there are like services where you pay and somewhere where there need to be trees, they are planted mm. in your honor. So when someone's having their like third kid and they already have all the stuff that they need, <laughs> maybe that's a good, a good gift. Sure, sure. And there was actually two, two artists that I really love, Alex and Allison Gray. They basically, they're back in the, I think, 90s, 80s and 90s, they were doing various ritual performance art. And one of the things that they did, because they were having a young girl, and they took people out into a little patch of woods near their house, and they created this this ritual where they had the outline of a of a person on in the ground with these stones, and they uh, kind of had a fire going of many twigs inside of the, this outline. Then, when the ashes settled, the, they kind of put all the stones together, and in the center, in the heart of this this outline, they planted a tree, and mm. that is the way that you know they kind of created a, a whole little ritual around this and when every few years they would they would come back with with their daughter and, and take a picture of her with yeah. the tree and so so it, it can it can even become something that is more 
rather than just like paying somebody far away to plant right, a tree, right, right. which is also great because yeah. places in the world that really need trees, yeah. um, but making it making it something that's very visceral, tangible, and and artistically beautiful. Yes. Well, that's the thing. I totally agree. And that's specifically what you described, which is beautiful. It's also about processing time. I mean, right, that's what a birthday is. You get older every day, but the idea of like, we've been around the sun once since the last time it was your birthday and however many times ago since you, you know, entered the world. And it's like that idea of processing how much time has passed and how we're aging with the tree is really, it's like, it's it's kind of reminds me of like the way people draw the heights of their children on like a little panel door frame. And it's like, why do that? Right. You can measure your kid. How tall are you? Well, why keep it? Why, why write on your house um, and keep that there? Because it's a way of, and write the little date. And it's a way of saying, wow, a year ago, you grew this much in a year, this much has changed. You have gotten this much further along in your journey. And I think that there's something about that, that we really all crave. And what you said about it being like a performance art piece. I mean, I really do, again, this is a compliment. This is no disrespect, but I I really believe that so much of our rituals and traditions around the world are performance art pieces. And it has this negative connotation, like it's not real if it's a performance, but it is like all great theater. It is about something that is real. It's just framed in this way so we can wrap our mind around it. And like, Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think about a wedding, right, it's, you have costumes, you have a script, you have an audience, a wedding ceremony, like you have, I mean, the dress rehearsal, right? We call mm-hmm. it the day before mm-hmm. the rehearsal. And right, it's like, right. you know what I mean? It's, it's, about, it's about a performance where you are doing the play about the idea that two people have committed to spend the rest of their lives together because they're exactly. in love with each other. But right. you it, can't just, like, it's, it's not it, just like, okay, you send in a form. It doesn't do the same thing. I mean, great. And if right, you get married right. at the courthouse or elope or whatever, but just the exchange of rings or jumping over a broom or stepping on the it's, glass. It's, or- it's, it's theater. It's, yes. it's, uh, it's, a piece of, it's a piece of artistic, you know, creation, right? Absolutely. And that's good. I mean, that's not like a negative thing, but I just right. think that when we, it's like, well, why do we need that? Because this is a change and we want to understand it and we want to feel what it means and get swept up in the moment. And it's not just, I mean, sometimes people elope and that's great, but why have an audience there? Why does everyone have to come? Why does your great aunt mad if she's not invited? Because we all want to experience this feeling of going through the portal from, okay, these two people are separate in some way to they are now one. And I think that that's like so powerful. And I think when we're creating rituals for ourselves, even very small ones, it's helpful to think about it in that way as a little art form, even if it's very private, even if it's just the thing that you, the yoga video you watch every morning or whatever it is, just that idea that we are doing this in, 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 as a way of understanding what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Another ritual that you talk about in the book, and there, there are many, you kind of structure the whole book as a kind of progression through life from birth to adolescence, to adulthood, to, to getting old and, and passing on. And also with the seasons themselves, spring, summer, winter, fall and winter. The coming of age part of the book is, I, I, I was really interested with the kind of marker that you, uh, you talked about of what it means to become an adult. You mentioned the, the Baha'i faith, where basically you, you have, it's, it's, a, it's a tradition, a religious tradition, where you are given the choice at, at the age of 15, whether or not you want to enter the faith or not. And you, there's this really, I think, a, appealing idea to me of when we come, what, is it, what does it mean to become uh, an adult? It's, I think, doing, doing something that's maybe difficult or hard, but also deciding what it is that we want to believe. And I think belief is something that evolves throughout our lives. It's not a single moment that we, we necessarily decide forever and ever that we're going to be just one thing. But I think that that, that is a, a very important liberty and choice that especially young, young people have to, I think, have to at least be given the opportunity to make to be asked in a maybe in a kind of ceremonial way what is it that you believe in and what is it that you want to uh, try and live by rather than kind of assuming uh, that your children will will take carry on exactly as 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 you have carried on right right yeah i mean i think that that's the thing belief or lack thereof it just it cannot be enforced the individual has to just experience the world and see what makes sense to them. And I think that the other thing about coming of age rituals is everybody matures at a different time and speed and in different ways at different times. And there's not, unlike birth and death, there is not a moment that it happens, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that asking children even from early childhood, what their philosophical ideas are is really valuable because it just, then you're just, I mean, but the problem is if you're very invested in your child totally agreeing with you, it's, you may not want to bring up that conversation because you just want to present your case. But if you're interested in your child feeling confident that they can sort of explore these deep ideas and see what makes sense to them and, and, and hold that place to tolerate ambiguity and ask really deep, profound questions and like wrestle with the reality of, let's say, mortality or the, just the state of the world, any of these things. I think that um, making a, a home where those conversations are welcome and encouraged will will make it possible so that when that child really does turn 12 13 14 15 they have thought about these questions i mean that's kind of even for adults i think this is this is part of the problem when we sort of shy away from the really hard questions like how do we get here what are we doing here what happens when we die what's the point of all this <laughs> all all that stuff um then when something 
really when someone dies, let's say, and, and you have to really confront those feelings, it's much harder than if we sort of take a moment when things are going well to have some of these deep conversations and ideas. And I think I, I know a lot of people who, when they have young children who start asking what happened to grandma or whatever, and they have to really reckon with these questions when they have a little curious person who doesn't realize that it's taboo to, to broach certain issues. And I think it's, it's much harder to have those conversations and to know what to say in those situations if you're not sort of carving out some, some moments for yourself to really wrestle with uh, these deep, profound questions and what you believe and separating what you've maybe always been told or always been expected to do from what you think is true. Yeah, yeah. So in the book, you uh, mention part of your own family history in which that that point is is sort of reached. And this is between, I believe, your grandfather Sam and 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 his father Labe. Uh, no, um, that's a, those are actually the names of on my dad's side, but this is on my mom's side. My grandfather side. Harry and my great grandfather Benjamin. Yes. Okay. Okay. Could could you tell that yes, story? Gladly, it's one of my favorites. Okay, so l- let me give you this for context. When I take like a DNA test from like a box for ancestry, it just comes back like you are ninety nine point nine 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 percent Ashkenazi Jew. High score. High score. Yeah, I know. I mean, not to brag or anything, but there's just nothing else going on there. Um, so. My great-grandparents on my mom's side uh, came from Eastern Europe through Ellis Island, of course, and they were Orthodox. And my, my great-aunts were born in Europe, but my, my beloved grandfather, Harry, who's no longer here but was the best, was born in New York and had the, much of the experience of being the child of immigrants and he but he was the first person in his family to go to college went to NYU studied journalism and as it does college made him cosmopolitan and skeptical and all the things that that you know it has the reputation for doing and one day he took the train home to Queens to his parents house and i just like obviously this story is you know, been passed down to me, but my mother is a glorious storyteller. And so there's all these like detailed nuance that I've received, uh, despite not being an eyewitness. But, um, you know, I just picture him on the train with like that feeling of just like having that knot in your stomach when you have to have a really hard conversation. And he gets home and he finds his father davening, praying, and he waits for him to finish. And his father looks up at him and he's so happy to see him and he's harry says look dad i've got to tell you something i'm not gonna go to shul anymore i'm not gonna keep kosher not gonna go um not gonna observe shabbat because i just i don't believe and like imagine like bracing for that reaction and like everything his parents like went through. I mean, they, why do they leave Europe to preserve the ability to have these traditions and this faith? And his father looked up at him and said, the only sin would be to pretend. And that just became kind of like a family mantra. And like this idea that it's like, you just can't 
go through the motions to make someone else happy. You have to do what's right for you. And I, I think that, I don't know, my theory without really doing like, I don't know, maybe too small a sample size of just the people I've known in my life. I think that people who really are true believers are not threatened by the lack of belief of someone else, even their child. I think it's when you have a little bit of doubt that you can't bear to hear anyone else's doubt because you're afraid that your faith will not withstand mm. and will not mm. withstand the questions. Whereas if you have total conviction, then you're solid and it's okay. But if deep down that you don't want to, like, it's like a, it's like trying to let a little air out of a balloon. It's just like, it's sure. all going to come out. Sure, sure. Like a part of you suspects that may, maybe it yes. isn't, it isn't right. real. Exactly. And if you hear the argument, you might not be able to put it out of your head. But anyways, my great-grandfather, that was his reaction and it was okay and it wasn't a problem. But I think in part because my grandfather didn't have to like rebel because that wasn't a hard as hard a conversation as he feared and because it wasn't like it had, was being forced on him and he had to choose between his father and his this, he we kept, he kept, and on my dad's side too, some of the traditions. And so growing up, because being a secular humanist with like a scientific uh, I, philosophy doesn't have the like holidays and rituals and like cuisine and all these traditions that really do connect you to your ancestors. We had secular Hanukkah, secular Passover. We had all this stuff. And it's the reason that I still carry on some of those traditions now is because beyond a few generations, like I know Benjamin's name, but I don't know his parents' names. Mm -hmm. And beyond a few generations, the only thing I know about my ancestors is that they were Jews. Yeah. And so I, it's a way of having that little sense of like time travel where I'm like, okay, I, the people I came from that make up my genetic information after a hundred and some years, I don't know anything about them, but I know that on this night of the year, they would be lighting these candles or yeah. I know that yeah. they would be reading this. And that, that makes me feel connected to them, even though I accept that they're ideas of how and why we got here are probably very different from my ideas of how and why we got here. Yeah. And, and I've heard so many, so many people multiple times I've heard this idea that uh, when you are, are praying as, as Jew, as, as any, any religious tradition, you have this sense of almost like that this moment, that this room is part of a kind of receding hall of mirrors in which generations mm. and generations back, different different scenes, different different clothing, different whatever, but uh, the same act was Language. being performed, right, in different languages, yeah. in different parts of the world. The same exact ritual was being performed with the same exact words. And even if you don't necessarily uh, believe the words as literal today, you, you feel that you are part of this progression that right. reaches back hundreds and thousands of years. Right, totally. And I think there's something really valuable in that. And as a person who does not pray, I feel that most strongly when I light candles in like a ritual setting, yurtzeit candle, like on the anniversary of someone's death, Hanukkah candles, there's lots of candles in Jewish <laughs> traditions. Um, we love them. Um, and there are lots of candles in lots of other traditions. And I think, and I write about this in the book, the thing that's so amazing about a candle is it's like a little tiny mini sun. And like mm -hmm. the idea that it stirs something in us to have fire 
in this contained way and, and that that is part of our, again, like if you came from another planet, you'd be like, oh, of course they love this because they're yellow star obviously this is their thing. You know what I mean? And right, like, right. it's like, it's like, I, I, I love that to me that that makes it work on so many levels. And I will also add that, that I totally connect to what you're saying, but also that only gets us back, let's say, I don't know, 6,000 years or so, or depending mm -hmm. on what you're doing or what your background is a few thousand years for doing something really, really ancient, maybe more, but that only brings us, I mean, that's all new. That's yeah. all new. And right. so when we go back further and try to think about what can we know, what can we do that we know even the earliest humans were likely doing and what is the actual most traditional stuff? To me, that's looking up at the night sky, wondering. That's a safe bet that yeah. the, that stuff, that was happening, like, I picture like a mother nursing a child, people preparing a meal together, sharing a meal together. That's the kind of stuff that no matter where you're from, no matter what your, your ancestors were doing five, six, seven thousand years ago, Tens the of thousands most, of years ago, basic. you can you can right, bet on right, that, right? Right, or or even even breathing, or yes. you know, having having sex because yes, you wouldn't be here. Oh if my not goodness, for that. right? How that seven billion people <laughs> got here somehow, <laughs> right? No, absolutely, all of that stuff that it's we sort of the most basic. I mean, eating all that stuff, the, the most basic. I mean, even getting in the ocean, depending on where you are, but a lot of a lot of civilizations near coastlines, you know the those experiences, if we can take a step back and not think of them as just the baseline of existence, the regular things, but think of them as really sacred and beautiful and a way to connect even further back. And then listen, it's great to connect to your eight times great grandparents or something like that. But if you want to go further and, and connect to even before we were, you know, exactly the species we are now yeah. Yeah. some of that stuff is 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 really as old as time i mean yeah. for primates yeah. you know i don't know how what the best way to connect to like single cell organism ancestors <laughs> were um, but there's 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 we can we can get back pretty far yeah my friend Dorado Brooks is a photographer and videographer here in New Orleans, and he's starting one of the first and only black-owned video production companies in the city, Golden Hour Productions. He is a great photographer and has worked on a bunch of big-name films throughout the years. You can support his new studio by contributing to the first production that they're undertaking, Something in the Water. Basically, it's a project that I helped to co-write with Dorado, and it's about a man rowing through a ghostly flooded city looking for answers about where this dark water has come from and why it won't go away. Go to kickstarter.com and search something in the water, or find the link to the Kickstarter in this episode's description. And now, back to the show. I want to go back to, uh, you know, those, those immortal words, you know, the only sin would be to pretend because, and, and I can see very clearly how that could become a sort of mantra for your family in particular, because I think that authenticity and intellectual honesty is uh, a chief virtue of the sciences and was a chief virtue for both of your parents. And 
And yet that kind of authenticity is really hard. And it's something that you write about, you write about this in your book. After um, having lost your father at a young age, you would often have dreams in which he comes back. And, and in some of those dreams, you, you, you tell him, ah, I had all these dreams in which, just like this, in which you were going to come back. And then you realize, wait, is this just another one of those dreams? Yeah. And yeah. he would nod and you would wake up. I think that in, in among those that really believe in science, among atheists, among humanists, there is a kind of triumphant idea about you know science that it will through human reason through human progress we will be able to overcome our limitations to potentially expand beyond the earth and 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 integrate with technology in beautiful powerful new ways but at the same time there is a flip side to all of this uh, the, the tragic aspect that i think doesn't really get talked about as much but it's that hard and unforgiving reality in which you'll never, for all we know, you'll never be able to see your loved ones after they die. And that we're, you know, not the center of the universe, that we'll probably never matter on the grandest scales, that there's no set purpose to life as for all that we can see. And it's this, this tragic element of, of the scientific perspective that I think most people either ignore or they, or they, you know, they don't talk about much. But I think it's something that is really a powerful thing that we have to we have to confront, and it's something that I think both you and 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 your father would confront, and you would you would be honest about the difficulties of this. Oh, I, th- I think it's sorry to interrupt. I yeah. think it's crucial. I mean, but I also think once you go through, I mean, this is like talking about mortality and like, you know, the things that are very easily put out of your head until you have to face them. You know, the existential crisis, that feeling of like zooming out and all of a sudden we are just a tiny speck in in a vast universe. And like the feeling of your chest tightening when you think about that we're here for a blink of the blink of an eye, we, nothing is guaranteed if you don't think that there's like a grand plan, then it's just (laughs) absolute, like, I mean, it's so easy to get swept up in terror, honestly. Terror or despair. Yeah. But I think on the other side of it, there is something even more beautiful. I think when you go through that and you have the freak out, as (laughs) as I wrote about in my book, and really like reckon with that stuff, the other side of it is that it's because it's not forever that this is so special. We are here right now. And all the different forks in the road that could have been just off by a millimeter that would have changed the course of things and you wouldn't be here right now. The idea that we're, we are here on this beautiful planet that we evolved to be perfectly in tune with and, and that we are part of this species, this planet, this solar system, this universe, even if it's for like an eye, it's still sacred and amazing. And something does not have to go on forever in order to be good. It's in fact, if it was forever, it just, there would be no urgency to anything. There would be nothing special about it. It's just like all the traditions around the world that contrast winter and summer, night and day, 
cold and hot, all of this, it's because you cannot experience any of anything without the opposite. And it's the fact that we're mortal that makes being alive special. If, yeah. if we weren't, yeah. it would be nothing. And so I think that it's, it's that, that, I mean, right, it's scary to think about, but it is, I think it's a pathway to deeper joy than a story that is not supported by demonstrable evidence that says we will go somewhere else after and see everybody we missed again. I think it, it, that makes this the dress rehearsal, and I think this is the show. Yeah, and it, it's an under-celebrated strength of non-belief, of, of atheists, of naturalists. Those that have to essentially that have chosen to struggle with and grapple with and accept that the answers that science um, seems to point to are not easy and that they're not going to turn away from them. Uh, there is a kind of courage that is required to look at reality, confront death, not hide from it, and, and also take on a kind of humility regarding human life that we are not the center of the world, that we, we, there is no, there are no, you know, gods and goddesses that have invested special purpose and, and powers or significance into our, into our race. And I, I think there's, it, it is important to, to look with wonder on the world and to, and to also, I, I think the, the notion of, of suffering, of humility, of, being being able to to bear what is difficult is something that a lot of religious traditions speak to because I think that it is something very human. the The Stoic tradition for me is one that that rings particularly uh, true because of the way in which they say, you know, uh, amor fati, love your fate, whatever it may be, and they constantly try and remind themselves to remember death, that it is coming. You Memento know, mori. Memento mori. It, it's, it's, it's hard and it's scary, but as you say, it makes life worth living. So many people want immortality. They want things to go on forever. But there's, there's, a, real, there's a real question of if you did have immortality, it might not be as great as you think. You know? Yeah, I know. It's not really that appealing to me, <laughs> frankly. But I think it's like anything. It's like if you put it out of your head or you try to ignore it or you try to convince yourself that it's not real, that will not provide a safe haven from mortality. And I think coming to terms with it is it's just really important because you're going to have to face it one way or another. And I think, I think, I don't know, I just think that the – while there are things about looking at the world through an evidence-focused lens that can be difficult, there's also so much beauty and there's so much, there are so many things that, that um, we can feel good about and feel excited about and feel joy about that depending on your tradition, other traditions may forbid or discourage or create shame about or whatever it is. But the idea that we're... I think there's a lot of beauty and joy that can come from this perspective. And I think thinking about mortality, it doesn't rob us of joy. It's, I, I, I just don't. I think that it's hard, but it, it's not like if we don't think about it, everyone will live forever. We're still going to have to confront these ideas and putting it out of our head. You know, it's such a taboo subject, I think. It's more taboo almost than anything else. And I have a friend 
who will say like, if you have to, I don't know, anything comes up that's like, I don't know, you have to like fill out a form for like a life insurance thing or something like that. Anything that remotely touches on the idea of mortality, she'll say, I don't want to be morbid or anything. And I'm like, this, that is not morbid. We have to talk about this. This has to be part of our life is to recognize that it's finite and that that should be an impetus to do more, experience more, make the world better for everyone else. That's the thing too. The thing I admire most about religion is the social pressure to do good, to, to do good works. And I wish that in the secular community, that was more a part of the rituals and traditions. You know, I think we do okay in the category of activism sometimes, but I think there's a lot more that we can do because if you don't believe that everything happens for a reason or that there's some grand safety net where at the end the good guys are going to get their reward and the bad guys are going to get their comeuppance and it's just random and if you're here and you have had a great deal of privilege, which I have, it's not because you like are so great that you deserve it, but because the random roll of the dice landed you there. And so it's up to us to make the safety net. It's up to us to make things more fair and just. And I think that that is, that can provide a lot of meaning and purpose for people who don't think that meaning and purpose comes from Mount High. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I also took away from just going back and rewatching some of the old Cosmos series is the notion that the truth has to be fought for and defended. There are several, several occasions in which your father, Carl Sagan, brought up things like astrology yes. or different, different contemporary pseudosciences that are, were popular back then and are popular today. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it feels like with, with the decades, um, there has only been more uh, pseudoscience. There has been more conspiracy theories. You have, you know, flat earthers today who accuse NASA of, of, of giant conspiracies that, uh, you know, they're guarding, they're guarding the edge of the world, uh, the Antarctic wall, you know, so that nobody goes over and sees that, oh, actually the earth is flat and there's space beyond there. Or anti-vaxxers who, you know, uh, believe that vaccines cause horrible deformities or autism in children, moon landing conspiracies, on and on and on. You know, and we live today in a, in a somewhat very scary age in which our social networks and our in our in the architecture of the internet promotes the spread of false information, very emotionally charged information, and people eat a diet of information that is so unhealthy, that is so removed from facts and and critical thinking, that today it feels like more than ever, the truth needs to be defended, the truth needs to be advocated, communicated, popularized, much like like both of your parents have done throughout their careers. Yeah. And I think, you know, I go back and forth about like, is there more stuff like that now? Or we just have more access to everything everyone thinks because of the internet and social media. I don't know which well, it is. It probably has to do with the fact that there were people that believed the stuff before, but now they have, these people have access to one another. Right. And, right. and, and so that it allows. little communities, even if you live in a town and you're embarrassed to say that you think the earth is flat, but you can find anonymously find people somewhere else who agree with you. Yeah. Right. I think two things. One is one of the, my favorite things, my parents work is this 
I think I believe it's in uh, the book Demon Haunted World, the baloney detection kit. My my father almost never swore, but baloney is a you know a polite way of saying another word. Um, uh, and just like, how do you know what is true? How do you figure it out? And like, what are the tools that we have on hand without, let's say, doing like a whole bunch of experiments or something that can help us discern what is real and what's not? And I just wish that was taught in elementary school. I just think that that idea, and it's easily Google, Googleable, and this idea of like, how do we weed through all of this? And another thing that, that my, my dad would say that I, I think of all the time is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. A really outrageous theory of, of things is not on the same footing as it's not like, well, it could be, could be this or not. We don't know. It's that if you, if you believe that there is, I don't know, let's say a giant monster in the, at the bottom of a lake in Scotland, that, that, then you have to provide real evidence to support that. It's not the same saying, well, there may or there might be or they're not. We don't know. Flip a coin. It's that if you have a, a theory that is really extraordinary, then to support it, you need really big evidence. And, and I think that that, and not just some, let's say like blurry pictures. So that's, that is what I wish that, you know, more people had access to. And in terms of a conspiracy theory, I think that there is on some level, I think people, not everyone, but I think that there is some appetite for this idea that even if it's nefarious, even if it's terrible, there is a plan and somebody is in charge. And I think that's, what's appealing about conspiracy theories is and it, it really matches up with theology, this idea that like, you don't know, you may not know what God wants or why he's doing something that seems terrible, but he knows what's going on and he has right. a plan. Right. And I think that that tracks versus the idea that this is just all kind of chaos. And sometimes one unstable person can change the course of history. Let's say, I mean, the conspiracy theory idea really like dates back to like the Kennedy assassination. And it's like, I think that there is some appetite for the idea that like there is a plan, somebody's pulling the strings and not mm -hmm. that this is just kind of, um, yeah, in, in some ways best, it's in some know? yeah, in some ways it's more comforting to think that evil people are controlling the world for evil purposes than to think that nobody is in control. Right. 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 It's like, would you rather be in the car with like a you know, like a drunk driver or just no one sitting in the driver's seat? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But I think that there's some something there that that it is it's appealing to people. People wanna believe that somebody's somebody's pulling the strings even if that somebody isn't so great if we if we taught children like the baloney detection kit and you know taught them to ask hard questions and that's, sit with and the ambiguity and I, and I just Google that. So, so anybody can Google B yes. baloney detection kit and it yes. will, you'll find a list of, I think like nine or so yeah. strategies for testing an idea and, and, and checking how reliable is it. Right. And yeah, I think, I think, right. G giving this as a, as a resource to, to, to young children, getting, yeah. getting them thinking about this early. And just really the idea of encouraging them to ask hard questions. And when your little kid asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, feeling like you can say, I don't know, or that's a really good question, or nobody knows, or let's go look that up, rather than like feeling like you have to have every answer to everything. And I think the problem with that people sometimes feel about 
encouraging children to ask really hard questions and putting that as a value, um, teaching that as a value is that you're worried you're going to get some hard questions that you're going to have to deal with that are going to maybe change your perspective or change how your child sees you. And I think that going back to this thing about intellectual honesty and realizing that like scientific method and like this, it's not about being perfect. It's about just following the course to deeper understanding. And if that's what we value more than we value being right. And of course, scientists are human beings and everybody has those moments. But if the idea is not to just preserve what we already believe, but to get closer to truth. I think that that just changes the dynamic and changes all of these conversations and changes the way we think. Yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned in the book, uh, science requires the admission of error and mm -hmm. of changing course. Uh, and I believe that you quote your father as saying, science demands a tolerance for ambiguity. Where we are yeah. ignorant, we must withhold belief. And yeah. uh, I think it is something that is so hard for human beings to do yeah. because of yeah. pride, because of shame, because of all, all these all these complexities that we we've built up an identity for ourselves and a map of the world. And if and if that is challenged, it is it is hard to change those deeply ingrained beliefs. And yeah. that is exactly what we need to get good at doing to be able to live in a world that is globalizing and that has so many different values, political perspectives, religious perspectives that have to coexist if we are, if we are to coexist peacefully. And, not, and on top of that, the scientific discoveries we are making, which are constantly challenging our own, yeah. our own uh, ideas and visions mm. of what, what we are, who we are, and what the world around this is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sasha, is there one ritual that you want to leave listeners with something either from the book or maybe something not from the book that you think people might get value from in their day-to-day -day lives? So since quarantine and lockdown and everything, my husband and my daughter and I normally in the, in the before times, we would on the weekends go to a museum or aquarium or something like that. And once everything shut down, we started going on every weekend on a little hike in a nearby national park where the facilities were closed, but the trails have been open. And we did that for months every week. And it really became kind of a sacred thing. And once it got too hot here to do that in the summer, we went to the to the ocean every week and now it's getting cool again and we've started going back to the forest. Mm. And there is something profound and beautiful about just walking in the woods. And I think as we're all, depending where you are and what the circumstances are, either inside or just life has taken on a different different schedule, different idea, and we're all looking into our computers and phones even more than we were before. I think that the, the ritual of something that connects us to nature, that reminds us that we're part of nature and not apart from it is really valuable. And my daughter started saying, she's three, and she started saying, um, when things go back to normal, can we still go to the forest? And I was like, <laughs> yes, of course. I'm sorry that we haven't been doing this all your life. But I think that there's something there. And if that's not what speaks to you, find something that once a week, if, you, if you're not religious and you don't have church and you don't have temple, once a week, find something that taps that 
part of your mind and opens it up to something that you do you do believe in and and that you can philosophically dive into without reservation even if it's just being among the trees so the last little segment yes a thesaurus yes this is a fictional thesaurus for atheists as i mentioned the the language around human spirituality is very loaded with supernatural implications so this is a chance that we're invite guests to invent or introduce a word from a different language that serves as a synonym for a profound human experience do you have something to add to the a thesaurus i love this idea and i struggle with this so much as i write about in the book and like spiritual and even magic right comes from magi like it's all very steeped in theism. And I do think, you know, language evolves and words take on new meanings. And I hope that that happens with with some of the etymologically theistic words we have. But I'm wondering if you accept phrases and expressions in in this. Yes, yes, we do. (laughs) Because the two expressions, the two like theistic expressions that I love most are there, but for the grace of God, which of course, I don't think it's for the grace of God, but I just, that idea of like, whew, lucky, close call, that could have been me, things could have gone slightly differently. I, I always want a secular version of that. So the, the, the best I can come up with is there, but for the luck of chance, go mm. I. And then the other one I'm actually going to put out as a question because I, maybe a future guest or a listener you can find me on social media, can come up with something. But my other favorite expression that I don't really use because it's so religious is from your lips to God's ears. I mm. love it because I love that God has ears and like that that's how <laughs> like it's going to give him an idea and he's going to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to do something nice for that human. Like it's like dropping a hint like to your spouse of like what you want for your birthday. I love that expression. But I need something that 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 is a little bit more in line with my belief system. So, if anybody ha- out there has has a good replacement from for, from your lips to God's ears, I want to hear it. <laughs> All right, that's wonderful, Sasha. Thank you again for coming on the show. And yeah, for those interested in buying the book for small creatures such as we, I'll put a link into the episode description. Thank you so much, Sasha. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. I hope you enjoyed the show. In the episode description, you'll find the two links that I mentioned, one for bookshop.org, a place where you can buy Sasha's book and also support the podcast. And there's also the link to the Kickstarter where you can pre-order the gorgeous photography book that Dorado and I are creating. If you know anybody that loves Carl Sagan, send them a link to this episode. I think they'll love it too. Once again, thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time on Reenchantment.